Good morning, church family. I'm going to tell two stories today, one of them from my life and one of them from uh, the Jesus story. The first one is in the summer of 2020. It's a pretty memorable summer for most of us. You guys remember summer of 2020? We were learning new words like social distancing and essential business. You guys tracking with me where we're at on the timeline, right? The Pos Beaches and the Leeches were in the UP. We had just had lunch at a restaurant called The Gangplank. If you're ever in the Upper Peninsula, I do not recommend Gangplank because the line for lunch is already long enough don't go because you're going to mess it up for me and my family. <laughs> Hands down, easily one of the top five places I have ever eaten. I was going to say best place in the UP, but I don't feel like that's saying a whole lot. <laughs> like, what are your choices? Uh, but of all the places I've traveled to, uh, you know, Maine and Florida, Chicago, I love Chicago pizza. I've been to Jamaica. I would say gangplank, hands down, delicious. It has nothing to do with our material this morning. That's just a freebie if you're up north. And so uh, we finished lunch. And so uh, walking down the street of St. Ignace there along the shore, uh, I just hear this phrase. Leave it. Let me put this into context a minute. This morning, our dog Charlie went absolutely crazy at the front window because there was a squirrel getting into our bird feeder. And Charlie, being a loyal dog, understands how much that aggravates Dad. I'm sure that's his motive. So he sees a squirrel going for the bird feeder, and he loses his mind. Now, we have to use a phrase with Charlie when he wants to go after something that he shouldn't go after. Leave it. We're out walking. Charlie, he sees a bunny, another dog. Leave it. A pile of poop that he thinks is a snack. Leave it. Right? And so when I see him at the window and he, oh, just let me at him, Dad. Let me go get the squirrel. Right? And because he's so worked out, like, Charlie, leave it. And that's his cue, like, just leave it alone. So it's in that same spirit. I hear Rochelle say to me, leave it. I don't know what she's talking about yet, but it's not the first time that I've heard this from Michelle. So I be immediately begin to scan the horizon like, what am I supposed to leave? There must be something that she knows that I'm going to be like Charlie and somebody else is going to be the squirrel. And I look up and I saw it across the street. <clears throat> across the street, it's a group of guys. They've got a tent set up. And they're handing out signs for your front yard and stickers for your car that says, my governor is an idiot. You guys remember those. What I appreciate over the years is um, in these moments, Rochelle's response is leave it. Like you're not going to change their mind, just, just leave it. But she knows my nature. And Annette's response is, I'll wait. <laughs> 
same story, two different perspectives. Now, let me just say, I did leave it because there's nothing I'm going to do that's probably going to benefit that conversation. But uh, Nick and Annette and, and Rochelle, I think they all know that there's this thing inside me that wants to engage. And, you know, in those early days of the pandemic, uh, we, we actually we had met outside at one point. And I remember having a conversation with us together and I said, you know, there's two different types of wisdom. There's pre-experiential wisdom and post-experiential wisdom. And all of us are born with pre-experiential wisdom. In other words, um, I kind of know everything until I do it. Right? Like when, when you're uh, young married and you see married people with children and you think, boy, when I'm a parent, I'm never going to do this, that, and the next thing. And then you have children and you might not do the next thing, but you do this and that, right? Like pre-experiential wisdom. Then you actually have to do it and you realize, oh, I'm not an expert, but you become an expert. And then after you've done it, oh, now I have post-experiential wisdom. In other words, I've actually been in the machine now. I know what it's like, and I can speak to it, right? This is, this, this is the guy in the, in the upper deck telling the coach how to play the game and what play he should have done while he's got a beer in one hand and a hot dog in the other. Pre-experiential wisdom. Nobody wants to hear from that guy, right? And so in my mind, there I am on the sidewalk in St. Ignace, and all I'm thinking is, pre-experiential wisdom. Like, I want to go over there and ask those guys, like, yeah, so how many of you guys been governor? Oh, none of you. And, right, and this is where, just leave it. Because I can't imagine, and this isn't political. This isn't pro or anti-Whitmer's uh, policies or anything. That, that's, so let's just clear that out. Uh, this is a conversation about uh, a woman who is made in the image of God. That's what this is about for me. It's not about policies. And the thing is, is I don't know what it's like to be governor. I don't know what it's like to understand that no matter what decision you make about what businesses should be open or what should be closed, you're not like you're going to piss off half of the population. Right. I can't imagine the immense pressure. I know the pressure I feel when I'm trying to round up three children and decide where we want to eat. And I'm going to disappoint at least one of them, right? Because two want tacos, one wants burgers. That's three people, and I feel the weight of that. I can't imagine what it's like to try to lead an entire state and have the entire country looking at you. What are your COVID numbers? Are you going to show up on Fox or CNN? Michigan is rising in the numbers, right? And pre-experiential, post-experiential wisdom. But what bothered me that summer was the signs. Now, here's the thing. When we were all kids, uh, we heard the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names, blah, 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 blah. And as adults, we all know that's horse crap, that words hurt. Death and life really are in the power of the tongue. And there's things that stick to us, and there's things that stick to you to this day. There's things that your parents said to you or things that you wish your parents would have said to you. Words have power. So we get that. And... Um, I have also learned that uh, we believe that sticks and stones break your bones, words will never hurt you until there's an election cycle. And then it's kind of like all bets are off. You know what I'm talking about. We can just say and do whatever we want about our opponent. So I get that's how it works. That's how this world works. That's how culture works. But this is what bothered me that summer. What bothered me more than the signs and the bumper stickers that my governor is an idiot and my governor is a moron was the placement of the signs. 
So we have a neighbor. If you go about six blocks one way, we have a neighbor, and they have one of those signs in their front yard that uh, started cropping up a few years ago. And it was one of those signs that was in response to the signs that uh, you've probably seen them in some of your neighbor's yards, and it says, uh, in this house, we believe science is real, love is love, right? And there's kind of all these things, and it's kind of in a rainbow, and um, black lives matter. And so somewhere along the line, some Christian thought it would be a good idea to have a counter to those signs. And so now there's signs that look just like it. It says, in this house, we believe a man is a man and a woman is a woman. And at the bottom it says, and God is love. <laughs> and like, you're not helping. It's not, it's not helping. Like, no transgender person drove by. He's like, I never thought of it that way. A man is a man. I'm so glad I drove by that house. Like what, what are you doing to help that conversation? You're not helping at all. And then you go six blocks the other way from my house, and those neighbors, top of the hill, you get to the top of the hill, and they have a sign uh, in their front yard. It's right, right at the end of their driveway, and it has the name of their church. And then underneath it, it says, God is love, all are welcome. Now, so far, so good. Right next to that sign, my governor is a moron. Both houses. We believe God is love. My governor is a moron. Believe it. <laughs> so that was 2020, right? But this is this is where we this is where we're at. This is the world we live in. Watching the Obama campaign you know, over a decade ago. And seeing the, the posters, that Obama is Hitler. Obama is the Antichrist. You know, like it's, it's never, uh, we disagree with some of his policies and we think we could have a meaningful conversation where maybe we could meet in the middle. Antichrist! Hitler! Right? And we did it in the church. Rob Bell wrote, Love Wins. Antichrist! Richard Rohr, you know, interviews him, now Richard Rohr, Orthodox Catholic, right? Antichrist! I was listening to Michigan Public Radio last week uh, because I'm smart and cool. I just wanted to work that in. And, uh, but I heard the news report just after the holiday that the three men that were plotting to kidnap Governor Whitmer had been sentenced or found guilty. See, because here's, here's the thing, is at some point um, we're moving past name-calling and now it's starting to become very real. Like three men actually were plotting to kidnap Governor Whitmer. We've heard the statistics about marriage for the last 20 years to the point where we don't even feel the statistic. It's just a number now. We know that uh, statistically one in two marriages in America are going to fail. For most of us, that means probably one out of every two of our friends is on their second or third marriage. I just read a statistic this week that from 2009 to 2013, Road rage incidents increased by 500 percent. 
In 2009, 17% of those road rage incidents resulted in injury or death. In 2015, 89% of them resulted in injury or death. In the last minute, 20 people in a relationship, not divorced, in an intimate relationship with a partner or a spouse have been physically abused. Statistics, these are just the reported cases. 20 people per minute in the United States are hurt by a family member or a loved one. We have an us breakdown. On January 6th, Officer Brian Strickland, who just went to work to do his job as one of the Capitol Police officers, was among one of 10 people that were killed as Americans stormed the Capitol, broke out windows, busted down doors, set up a noose, and caused chaos. He lost his life over that, just trying to do his job, just trying to keep everything safe. When the pandemic started, uh, we were told immediately by the CDC and uh, by Governor Whitmer that we weren't allowed to meet. Businesses closed, churches closed. We recorded our services online so we could maintain some connection. And uh, in that first three weeks, I was talking to a couple that were a part of New Vintage. They had already found a new church, and this is what they told me on the phone. You guys are backslidden. You're listening to what the government, not the Bible, tells you to do. I'm not even sure what verse we were talking about, but okay. And they found a church in Jenison that was an underground church that was disobeying the governor's orders, and they were going to meet anyway. And they were done with New Vintage. And then backslidden was just the tip of the iceberg of the name-calling that would start for the next year and a half. We have an us problem. Now, don't try to figure out who it is because all of those people literally have left. And they've all left because of each other, because they don't just go talk to each other. And Nick and I have tried to encourage people, like, can we mediate a conversation? Nope, they're this, they're that. I don't want to go to church with that person. I don't want to go to church with that person. And it's in the middle. This is the cultural backdrop. This is the cultural backdrop that we approach the countercultural Lord's Prayer. And it starts out with these two words Our Father. We're not going to go word for word through this series, but I'm going to take two weeks to just talk about those two words words. Jesus, as we looked at last week, his, one of his students comes to him and says, Lord, teach us how to pray. Or there's a way that you pray, and there's a way that you live that seems to have some depth and some width to it that we don't have. Your life has an influence that our life doesn't have, and we seem to recognize that it goes back to your relationship with God, how you converse with God, how you relate to God. Can you teach us, right? And Jesus 
he teaches them this, what we call the Lord's Prayer. And he starts with our. Our Father. He doesn't say my Father. He says our Father. It's like right from the get-go, he wants to send a message. You know, we, 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 just, did this, uh, we just did this series going through uh, Advent, and we looked at the word Emmanuel. You know, the angel comes, has this conversation with Mary and Joseph, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we had a week where we talked about loneliness, and we said that, you know, research is telling us that for the most part, loneliness is just in your head that you have people and connections around you, but you are the one in the way. You are the one making those, you know, putting those walls up. And, and so we kind of said that that week, like, so if that is true, then the good news is that we can change our mind. We can change how we think about with. When it comes to the Lord's Prayer, what I'm starting to wonder over time, because prayer has always been a little bit of a mystery to me, if God is in control, God is sovereign, God is all-powerful, then who am I to, uh, you know, like, like why would I pray for somebody? Like, does God not know that my friend needs Jesus? Does God not know my, uh, you know, my friend's situation or my family's health crisis or my financial stress or whatever it is? Like, like it always felt weird to me. And I think what I'm learning as I go along is I don't know that prayer is about changing God's mind. I don't think God is, is in, like, over the, the universe, and he hears from Mark Leach, and he's like, that's a good idea. I never thought of that. I should reach down and uh, work on that person. I didn't even know they had a need, right? I don't, like, I don't think that's how God operates. I think what I'm learning as I go along is that the discipline of prayer probably is more about changing me than about changing God's mind. I think it's more about changing my mind than it is about changing God's mind. Like somehow it does this alignment process for me. And I think what we're going to see as we go along in this series is that the Lord's Prayer, as we talked about last week, like, like the Lord's Prayer isn't the only prayer that we pray as Christians. And we started talking last week, like why this formality? You know, he gives us this kind of formal prayer. And I, I, I start to wonder if it's a little bit like when we go to AA and we're like, hi, hi, my name is X and I'm an alcoholic. Or, or we have these other rhythms and these routines where we understand that that's just the first step of many, that, that there's kind of this roadmap of like, I'm trying to find my way back home. I'm trying to get my way back to the Father. And it's like Jesus is saying, I want you to start here. There's other things you can pray for, but I want you to start here because this prayer kind of aligns your heart with the Father's heart. And I think it's less about getting God to do something. And it's more about uh, what I'm thinking about and what I'm focused on. And right from the beginning of the prayer, it's as if Jesus is saying, I want you to start here. We're going to start with our Father. I want you to have a collective mindset. Like, I think it's supposed to change my mindset that this is an our thing, that we are an us, Right? So, I struggled this last few weeks with this material um, because I was trying to decide what direction to go with it. God and I had a lot of conversations about this material this morning because this material felt a little bit like walking into Cedar Point, like I don't know which roller coaster to get on first. Like there's so many directions we could take this. And you guys know, if you've been around New Vintage for a while, 
uh, there's a few themes that we just kind of keep hitting over and over and over because our discipleship process is a very simple process and we really key on some some central themes and so you know from day one we've talked about we kind of a four-part process knowing god growing together sowing generously and going into all the world and so this idea of growing together is pretty central to our theology here at New Vintage, that a huge part of the Christian life, I would say 25% of it or more, right, is all about us. It's about growing together. So here I am looking at this material like, Lord, there's so many things that we have said over the years. I don't want to just be a broken record and keep saying the same thing. Uh, Jesus, where do you want us to go with this material? Because I really think you are bringing us back to our again. And here's where we landed. We'll just go to the Jesus story. So this is story number two. Before the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11, Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 10. You don't have to turn to it, but I'm going to read it for you. Let me set it up. There's, uh, there's some lawyers that have been following Jesus around. They're called Pharisees. They're religious leaders, and they are like by-the-book guys. They are fundamentalists, right? They're the guys with the sign in the front yard. It, everything's black and white. There's no gray. And if you step outside of gray, you're out of black and white. There's, there's consequences. And, and so they're following Jesus around. Uh, they don't like Jesus. He is way too new agey. He's way too willy-nilly. He's too open-minded. He's too inclusive, uh, fuzzy theology. Uh, you're saying you're the son of God. Like, they've got some real issues with Jesus. And so we get to this story in Luke chapter 10. And uh, Jesus is talking about loving your neighbor. So this, this, this teacher of the law, he, this is important. This is, a, this is a temple leader. This is somebody with influence. This is somebody that has influence over dads, over community leaders, over families. Uh, this is how people, when they think of God, they're thinking of these men and what they say because they're kind of hanging on their words. And so he says, so teacher, you can kind of hear the sarcasm almost. Because he's not really asking because he wants to know. He's trying to set Jesus up. So, uh, according to you, well, what do we got to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' response, he says, well, you know the commandments. And this religious leader, he's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I've been doing those since I was a kid. You know, right? Okay. I can almost see Jesus' face, like, okay. All right, so nailing it, cool, that's great. The guy doesn't even see that he's missing it. He's, he says, well, so what is the whole law? And he, he responds, you know, love God, love your neighbor. And then the Pharisee asked the question, well, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? The whole thing, is, it's a test. So let's read it. In reply, this is Luke 10, verse 30. 
In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So I'm going to call this next section, Some Things Never Change. So at any point while I'm talking, uh, instead of an amen, if you want to just blurt out, ah, you can even nod your head a little bit and shake your head, some things never change. So we're going to unpack this, and uh, that's the phrase I want you to remember because it's going to become very relevant to what we're about to talk about. You know, some things never change. So let's talk about this story. You know, you've probably heard the phrase, the Good Samaritan, a Good Samaritan. We use it in our vernacular today. Somebody goes out of the way to do something nice for somebody, a total stranger. You might see it on a TikTok video, a YouTube video, an Instagram reel. You know, some stranger, um, maybe they, they helped uh, an animal that fell through the ice. And you don't even know who the person was, but somebody captured it on, on their iPhone. And like this good Samaritan just came by and rescued this deer that was stuck in the ice. This good Samaritan pulled over and helped me get out of the ditch. This good Samaritan saw that I was out of gas picked me up, took me to the gas station to get me a gas can, like, right? So we still use this term, and it comes from this story in Luke 10. So let's unpack what Jesus is doing here, because <clears throat> he was doing something super subversive. This story was crafted carefully. Who on earth were the Samaritans? This is important. So a little history here. A little bit of some things never change. Israel was a nation that was divided. Before the birth of Jesus, uh, Israel had a bit of a civil war. There was the north and there was the south. Does this sound familiar yet? Some things never change. And the north had their way, and the south had their way. Now, in the south, the southern part of Israel became Judah. 
This is where we get the term Jews. So if you were a Jew, you were a person from Judah. To the north was Israel. And the capital of Israel was Samaria. One of their favorite TV shows in the north was the Dukes of Samaria. It's where, excuse me, the Dukes of Judah, they had a chariot with a Confederate flag on it, and the Pharisees, they had these two bumbling Pharisees that were always chasing the Duke. Never mind, it's, it was funny in my head. Um, but they had the north and they had the south, and they hated each other. They had two completely different ways of viewing God and viewing life. Now, here's the thing. They had the same scripture. They had the same Old Testament law. They had the same history. They had experienced the same exodus coming out of Egypt. They had the same forefathers, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They had the same Psalms, right? They had the same book of prayer. They had the same law, right? All of it, but they viewed it totally different. And this is how it looked for them. Um, in, in the South... In, in, in Judah, they were like black and white. Law of God, black and white, in or out. They were the fundamentalists. We are God's favorite. And, the, I mean, they were the grand old party. And they were mean about it. They loved executing the law. Loved punishment. Oh, man, they messed up. And that's how it rolled in the South. You dressed right. You made sure that your robe was just right. You made sure that all your dietary restrictions were just the way they should be, right? You didn't smoke, drink, or chew, or run with girls that do. You didn't do that in the South. It's God's country. But in the North, up there in Israel... Well, they don't get it. Israel, they were the liberals. Israel was way too inclusive. So whereas the South was out of balance in that they were very exclusive, it's us versus everybody. In the North, it was like, we just kind of want to love everybody. And they, they went too far this way, and they started intermarrying and intermarrying with people of other faiths, other religions. And, you know, and, and Paul kind of talks about this in his epistles. You know, Paul talks about, you know, what fellowship does light have with darkness? And God had warned them not to do that. Now, he didn't say to hate them. He just said, I don't want you to intermarry with people of pagan religions because they're false religions, right? And, there was a, and, and so in the north, in Samaria, they were kind of like, yeah, well, we just kind of love everybody. And uh, yeah, there's rules, but you know, God is love. And they went too far that way, where there, there really wasn't as much black and white. It was kind of a little bit loosey-goosey. If you were from the South, you looked at them in the North like, yeah, they don't care about truth. So in the North, they felt like they cared about people. And in the South, yeah, but we care about truth. And both of them were out of balance. Both of them felt like the other one was wrong. And... Uh, some things never change. But the South had all the power. The South had been in control. The South felt like, I mean, they were the ones with the money. 
They were the ones with the hand on the wheel. So at the end of the day, uh, those in Israel, the Samaritans, right, because that was their capital, they were kind of under them. They were looked down upon. Now, they had to intermingle. They had to travel through each other's roads. They had to share a lot of their infrastructure. And the Jews hated those liberal, fancy-pants, new-agey, northern Samaritans. So here's this Jewish leader. You can kind of see him. He's got, like I can visualize him in my brain when I read this story. Like probably dressed really nice. His hair is just right. Right. He's going to be on the debates in Fox, you know, in a few weeks, and he's right. I'm not dissing anyway. It, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Jesus, quote, son of God. He tells him this story. He's like, well, there's this guy. and He gets railroaded. He gets beat up pretty bad. And, uh, and a Jewish man walks right by him. Ooh, we're going to stay to this side. Because if something bad happened to you, that must be, ooh, you must have done something wrong. You must have some secret sin in your life or something. Otherwise, God wouldn't be punishing you. I'll pray for you, brother. I'm out. And then a Levite. Who was a Levite? Levi. I mean, they were, like, they were like senior people in the temple. They were religious leaders. They were men of the cloth. Right? In today's vernacular, that would have been your pastor. And your pastor is like, ooh, look at that guy. Yeah, I'll, I'll put you on the prayer list, brother. And he didn't do anything. And then Jesus, he says, and then there was this, uh, there was this uh, lesbian transgender Samaritan. I embellish the story to bring it into, but this is what he's saying. Uh, there's somebody who doesn't see the world the way you see it. There's somebody that's uh, a little liberal for you, a little loosey-goosey for you, loose morals. And it, Jesus isn't even saying that that might not even be true. But he says, but the Samaritan got it. The Samaritan's like, this is a fellow human being. Somebody that, I, I don't know if he's Jewish or Samaritan, right? I, I, I don't know if he's one of us or one of them. What Jesus is doing here is so subversive. The point of the story is like, I, my neighbor is just, I don't know, they're all my neighbors. Black, white, straight, gay, Jew, Samaritan, Muslim, Buddhist, I, I don't know. Here's what I know. They're made in the image of my Father, of our Father. We're in us. We're in us. I don't know how you vote. I don't know who you sleep with. I don't know who you love. I don't know what you do behind closed doors. I know that we are an hour, and it's my job to take care of you, your family, because you're human. You're an hour.
couple of weeks after I went to the youth retreat where I became a Christian. And here's the thing. I didn't even know that I had become a Christian <laughs> because I didn't think in those terms. Uh, I didn't know fancy schmancy words like born again. I mean, I'd heard the term, but I didn't know what it meant or saved. All I knew is that I went on this weekend deal, had conversations about Jesus, came away and wanted to follow Jesus. That's all I knew. The youth pastor, Don, would show up at the school at least once a week. Now, that was new to me. It was new to me because God was on Sundays, and then there was the rest of the week, and then, you know, we'd have to go, go visit God, like, you know, go visit Grandma. You know, like once a week, we'd go see God. And God showed up in my lunchroom in the form of Don Pearson. Don Pearson would just roll around, and he'd find different students in the youth group, and he found me, and he, he said, hey, uh, Murph, right? Yep. Yeah, you were at the retreat a couple of weeks ago. Yep. You want to grab a slice of pizza? Oh, you know my love language. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. <clears throat> he picked me up on that Tuesday. We went to Sabaro at North Kent Mall when that was a thing. Remember Sabaro, the house of mirrors? <laughs> you could see yourself 10,000 times no matter which direction you looked. It was weird. It was good pizza. And sitting there over a slice of pizza and a Coke, he, uh, he asked me my story. So tell me, uh, how'd you end up on the retreat? So tell me, about your, tell me about your family. I got to tell him, yeah, my stepdad and I fight a lot. Tell me about your view of God. Tell me about the music you listen to. And we spent an hour together. After an hour, we drove across the street to a family Christian store, and he bought me a student Bible. And I can't tell you what that two-hour window did for me. Like, I've never been beat up laying on the side of a road. And here's this guy who's clean-cut, nice, you know, button-down polo shirt. And then there's me, long blonde hair, leather coat, death metal and punk rock bands written all over my coat. Like, we are not from the same side of the tracks it's as if Don read this story in Luke 10 and came over to my side of the road and was like, hey, you're one of us now. Yeah, ripped blue jeans and everything. Yeah. Um, yeah, we all wear button downs and suits, um, but you don't have to. Uh, you're one of us now. We had an older woman in our congregation. Her name is Penny Lambert. I used to call her my grandmother in the Lord. We got done with church, and a lot of us would just linger afterwards and talk. In fact, a lot of times they had to shut the lights off on us. It was like, cue, time to go home. Like, that's a good problem to have at church, right? And uh, I remember Penny coming up to me at church. She said, Murph, do you want to come over for, for Sunday dinner? I must put out a certain vibe. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> right, but <clears throat> I think it's, it's, it's this gift that God's given us, food and drink, right? Like, it's this thing we do. It's, this com it's supposed to be this communal experience. And uh, nobody ever, like, like, nobody ever took me out for a slice of pizza until I went out with Don Pearson. Nobody invited me over, just me, for Sunday dinner. 
And I went to Sunday dinner and I, I met uh, her, what was then junior high son. Uh, I was a junior in high school. He was in eighth grade. His name was Jeremy. And uh, he's, he's a goofy dude, but I kind of liked him. And I remember we listened to Petra Records. And she just asked me my story. She asked me how I came to know the Lord. She asked how she could pray for me. And like that moment at Sabaro with Don, like that was a formative moment. We just spent a couple hours together. And here's the thing that I realized, looking back on it, I don't think I was the first young person to sit at her table. I think it was a habit. I think it was a rhythm and a routine. I think that Penny Lambert understood that her role in the body of Christ was to come, just like Luke 10, over to the other side of the road and just find people. Hey, you look like you're not with anybody right now. You want to have dinner with us? We got an extra seat at the table. We're already making food anyway. Why don't you come join us? And there over West Michigan casseroles, Jesus did something in me. It's as if Jesus had skin on all of a sudden and said, you are one of us now. Our Father. Our Father. A few years ago, we handed these sheets out here at New Vintage. It's just called the one another's. The simplicity of the gospel, as echoed in the letters of Paul and Peter, echoed in the words of Jesus. I'll just give you a taste. Tell me if you pick up on a theme. This is how we live out the Christian life. John 13, love one another. Romans 12, be devoted to one another. Romans 12, honor one another above yourselves. Mark 9, be at peace with each other. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Romans 14, stop passing judgment on one another. Romans 15, 7, accept one another just as Christ accepted you. John 13, wash one another's feet. Romans 15, 4, instruct one another. Romans 16, greet one another. 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. 1 Corinthians 12, have equal concern for one another. 2 Corinthians 13, serve one another. Galatians 6, carry one another's burdens. Are you seeing a theme yet? Now here's the thing. I, I want to just do a little guinea pig test here a minute. I want to just, I want to say what these verses don't say. And I just want you to pay attention to what happens in your brain when I do this and see how much of the American spirit has infected the gospel. Here's what it doesn't say. Love yourself. Be devoted to yourself. Honor yourself above others. Be at peace with yourself. Live in harmony with yourself. Stop passing judgment on yourself. Accept yourself.
Instruct yourself. Have concern for yourself. Serve yourself. Be patient and bear with yourself. Be kind and compassionate with yourself. Forgive yourself. It, you notice it doesn't say any of that. In fact, that's nowhere in Scripture. And I know when we hear that, yes, but, 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 but we have to love ourselves. We, we have to care for ourselves. We, 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 we live in an age of, like, mental health is like the talking point. We've we got to do self-care. That's true. But you know how self-care happens? By serving one another. Some of the most depressed and angry and bitter people I have known in my adult life are the people that just keep trying to do work on themselves, and it just becomes like a, their black hole. Just self, self, self. Here's the problem. I love myself. <clears throat> That's the problem. I love myself way too much. I think I am the center of it all. It's all about me. And that's what I was born with. That's depravity. That's sin. And that's what Jesus came to die for. To free me from myself. The gospel isn't a call to love yourself, forgive yourself. Forgiveness is something you have to receive. Love is something you have to receive. All of these things are things we have to receive. And where do we receive from? From somebody else, God and others. The gospel is an our thing, period. There's an old African proverb. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. That proverb is convicting to me because I like going fast. I like doing things on my own pace, on my own timetable, and I don't want to wait for anybody else. Ministry is way more difficult than skeletons. I mean, skeletons is ministry, but like being on a team, it's like driving a bus. I remember driving a big truck for Mel Trotter, you know, and they were teaching me how to drive a bus, put me through CDL training, and uh, buses do not respond the way that my Subaru does. My Subaru is fast, it cuts corners, it gets me where I want to go quickly. Buses do not. My Subaru was built for me and a couple other people. It'll get you where you want to go quickly. A bus won't get you there as fast, but it'll take everybody with you. The original title for my message this morning was, Does This Bus Make Me Look Fat? <laughs> so forgetting my other analogies from other messages about who's in your car and some of us have too many people on the bus, etc. Different analogy, same metaphor. Uh, I wonder if at some point God's telling us, I want you to embrace the us bus. And it's slow and it's clunky and the seating isn't as comfortable. If you want to get there fast, go alone. We're really good at going fast in this country. But if you want to go far, if you want to make it the distance, go together.
One last thought to stir the pot, and then we'll wrap up and take a break. Um, I was talking to my friend Brian back in my 20s. Brian uh, is in a punk rock band, lives in Chicago. And uh, we're standing outside of a crusty old punk club in Muskegon. And he said, you know, Murph, I think what I'm coming to realize is uh, you cannot embrace Christ without communism. Now, understand, uh, I'm a Gen Xer. It was drilled into us. Communism is of the devil. And he went on to qualify his statement. He said, not communism like Karl Marx's communism that we see in Soviet Russia. He said, I don't think communism could or should ever work as a political ideal because men are sinful and the world is broken. Brian lives in a commune. Brian lives in a commune that started during the Jesus movement of the early 70s. It's a commune called Jesus People USA or Japuza. You can Google it when you get home. Japuza is a large building they renovated. Everybody lives there. Everybody serves there. They have companies that operate out of there. And uh, so let's say uh, you join the electric company. You can actually, if you live in Chicago, you can call Japuza Electric, and they'll come out and do electric work, and they're, they're trained, they're licensed, but you don't get a paycheck. It all goes back to Japuza. It all goes to pay for feeding the homeless, doing the meals, doing ministry, paying for the women's shelter, and everybody gets their stipend, but it's all the same. Now, hear me out, I'm not advocating that. And I think as I've gone along, because his, his statement arrested my attention, but I do think that there, there presents itself a deep difficulty if we try to embrace Christ without some form of socialism mixed with communism. Not as a governmental idea, but as a lifestyle. And I think you would be hard-pressed to read through the Gospels and the Epistles and not agree with me. I'm not downing on capitalism. What I am saying is that capitalism is incomplete because it's all about you. Capitalism is like when God looks at Adam in Genesis 1 and the fact that Adam was alone, God said, that's not good. Nothing wrong with Adam, but it was just an incomplete picture. I'll just let you just ruminate on that this week. But I think as we read through the Jesus message, there is a depth of our that the Lord's Prayer is calling us to return to. I think there's a level of our that the early church understood. They made sure everybody had enough. Penny made sure I was fed. Don made sure I had a slice of pizza and a Bible. The needs of everyone, physically, spiritually, and we're going to get into this more when we get into the Our Daily Bread portion of the Lord's Prayer. But when you became a Christian, you made a decision to die to yourself. And you are now in us. Welcome to the family. So here's your homework. It's easy homework. 
The first piece is this. Uh, I'm fairly certain to the people here in this room that I don't have to say this, but I know we do have a podcast audience around the state and a few people around the country. So this is for you guys that aren't sitting in the room with me right now. Uh, if you have one of these signs, my governor is an idiot, a moron, or something like it, uh, would you destroy it? Would you just take it out back and set it on fire? If you live in the city, maybe don't do that. But would you get rid of it? If you've got it on your car, would you scrape it off? Number two, would you see yourself as a shepherd when you leave here today? When you look in the mirror tomorrow morning as you get ready to go to the people you work with and alongside, would you see yourself as a shepherd? You know, the shepherds used to have those little hook crooks. You know why the shepherds had that crook, that cane-looking thing? It's because they were, they were hooking the sheep. No, 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 no. Right, and they they just kind of gently, they put the crook around their neck and just pull the sheep back and keep them all in. And that's what Jesus, you know, Jesus said, I'm going to make you a fisher of men, right? He's, he's the good shepherd. Would you see yourself as a shepherd and like the story in Luke 10, that as you go through your workday, that you have this invisible crook in your hand and that your role in this world is, hey, I see you over there. Come on over here and join us. Hey, you're made in the image of God. Come sit with us at the lunch table. Hey, I notice that you sit alone. I, I, uh, I notice you're always off on the fringes. Hey, let me, let me move a seat. <clears throat> Come sit with me. Would you see yourself as a shepherd when you go to school this week and you look around? You're like, you know what? <clears throat> I can't help all these people, but that one right there. <clears throat> That one lost sheep over there. They need some loving. They need to know God's love. And I get to be Jesus with skin on. Would you see yourself as the shepherd just kind of wrapping your invisible crook around them and just gently, don't yank it. <laughs> Come on, we've all met that Christian, right? God loves you. <laughs> I get it. And just kind of, hey, come on over and join us. Hey, come hang out with us. Hey, let's go get a coffee. Hey, let's go get a slice of pizza. Hey, you should come over to my house. Hey, we should be friends. Something. Would you see yourself as a shepherd? Come on and join us. Welcome to the party. We've been waiting for you. Number three. Would you pray the Lord's Prayer this week? Would you pray it alone? Just once. And would you pray it with your family? Would you teach it to your kids? And we talked about why that was important last week. If you haven't done it yet, that was your homework last week, would you do it this week? And number four, would you come back next Sunday and hear the second part of this? Because we're going to move from R to Father. And for some of us, we're going to find, ooh, that word dad, it's got some baggage to it. And so we're going we're gonna to gently open up some of that baggage and try to start to clean it out a little bit.
So there's your homework. Get rid of your signs and your bumper stickers. See yourself as a shepherd. See yourself with an invisible crook in your hand. Teach the Lord's Prayer to your family and pray it with them. And then come back next week for part two.